Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 485 with Jonathan Levy. Jonathan is talking about how you can become superhuman with your learning. We're talking speed reading and memory hacks. So you'll learn one, the scientifically proven method for speed reading. Two, how curiosity improves your learning. And three, a simple trick to remember names and faces. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep485. And now here's Jonathan's story. Jonathan Levy is a serial entrepreneur, author, and life hacker born and raised in Silicon Valley. Jonathan is the author of the Become a Super Learner series and the host of the award-winning Superhuman Academy podcast. His passions include learning languages, musical instruments, acro yoga, weightlifting, and cooking. He now lives in Tel Aviv, Israel with his superwoman, Limmer. Big thanks to Jonathan for spending some time with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check him out. Working remotely can be a challenge especially for teams that are new to it. How do you deal with your work environment being the same as home while staying connected and productive? And then there's your newest coworker, the cat. Well, your friends at Trello have been powering remote teams globally for almost a decade. At a time when teams must come together more than ever to solve big challenges, Trello's here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Trello keeps everyone organized and on the same page, helping teams communicate, focus, and connect. Teams of all shapes and sizes at companies like Google, Fender, Costco, and likely your favorite neighborhood coffee shop all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Jonathan, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. I'm really stoked to be here. Well, I'm stoked to have you. And boy, we're talking about super learning, speed reading, memory, becoming superhuman type things. I think it's going to be a ton of fun, but I'd love it if you could maybe orient us for starters, like, you know, what's really possible for a human being with regard to some of this stuff? I know we got memory champions who dazzle us, but can you just sort of paint a picture for what happens at the highest echelons of, of human super learning? Yeah. You know, no one's ever asked me that. I'll just give you a little softball to warm it up. <laughs> yeah, why has no one ever asked me that? I think the real answer is, I don't know, but I know what I've seen. I, I don't know what the upper, upper echelon is, but I, I've seen incredible learners throughout history, and I, I've made a practice of studying incredible learners throughout history. And the vision that I paint, and the reason my show is called Superhuman Academy, it used to be called Becoming Superhuman, is because I believe in a different model of superhuman. And I think probably the prior generation, what I call superhuman, they would call a renaissance man or woman. Someone like Benjamin Franklin, or to go less cliche, someone like Thomas Jefferson, who like, oh, you know, I, I invented 15 different electronic devices, I discovered electricity, I on the way happened to dabble in diplomacy a little bit and help entire countries form their revolutions, made huge advancements in democracy, Learned six languages because no one was willing to translate the book, so I did it myself, that kind of thing. Built businesses, sold businesses, established entire organizations, and I think 
you see this throughout history. You see these people who are so multidisciplinary. And I think that ultimately, if you ask me, what's the purpose of all of this? Why learn faster? It is to do that. It's not really to go deep, 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 deep into one subject, though I suppose you could. But I think apropos, like how do you be awesome at your job? It's being a multidisciplinarian. It's being able to be someone who's maybe in sales and already have learned your entire customer's product pipeline. I mean, I gave a, a talk to Shell's 150 top salespeople in the world and I asked them, what's your biggest challenge? And they're like, we need to know more about our customers' businesses than the customer knows themselves. I'm like, that's a, that's a pretty big challenge because you know the customer focuses on one business, you each are managing five to 10 accounts, but that's what it is. And, and that's what's possible if you can learn and more, more saliently, if you can retain everything you learn, you can be a multidisciplinarian. And from then and there, things get fun. Then you can learn four to five languages. Then you can learn four to five different musical instruments. You can pick up different sports and habits like acro yoga or Olympic weightlifting or speaking Russian or piano. Or These are all things that I've just done in the last few years because you make learning a habit, you make learning a super skill, and then you make learning a hobby and a way of life. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So your benefits there in terms of what's possible is you could, is it fair to say that most of us could become half as awesome as Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin if we knew super learning approaches? Yeah, I think we could become just as awesome. Oh, 100% is awesome. 100% is awesome. That's not exciting. And I'm right now reading a book called A Brief History of Everything. And I've read half the biographies out there and the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin and Elon Musk. Like I, re I really geek out on this stuff. And sometimes I just think to myself, I'm like, you know, it was easier back then because there were fewer people doing cool stuff. It's like when 1% of the population was college educated and the vast majority of people couldn't read, it was pretty easy to stand out as a, a brilliant genius. So I think we can achieve as much in learning. It might be harder to have an impact. Timing is everything, right? Yeah, it's like you and everybody else knows five languages, not impressed. <laughs> Bingo. And it's like it, I once was told by a teacher, it was like the, the best thing you can ever do to be successful is be born in the right place at the right time to the right parents. <laughs> Everything else is like minor tweaks. So, you know, being born on the cusp of like a, a couple different revolutions in a couple different countries in a time where like democracies are forming, that that's pretty like, you've got really great opportunities there that I think maybe we don't have. But then again, maybe 300 years from now, people will go, gosh, I wish that I could have been born right when the world was transitioning from old industrial agriculture and ineffective means of energy production and pollution to renewables and sustainables. Like, gosh, they had so much more opportunity back then than we do now. So who knows, right? Yeah, indeed. It could go either way. Well, so so that's exciting. So we've painted a, a big picture in terms of what may be possible. And and I'd love to maybe zoom right in. So what's really nifty about your courses and, and helping folks become superhuman and, and super learning is that, you know, you could readily measure results with regard to, I mean, memory performance, speed reading performance, fast learning performance. So could you share with us just the roughly kind of the approximate average before after results that you, you see for your students in, in terms of what you do measure? 
So I don't have exact numbers for you, but I can tell you from stuff that people publicly post in our Facebook group, typically when people come to us, they can remember exactly the average, right? Your short-term memory is kind of like four plus or minus two. Sometimes we get someone who can memorize seven. When people leave our course, the maximum we have them memorizing is like 20 random pieces of information and they all can memorize the 20. I can tell you that I push myself a little further because I'm kind of the poster boy. Uh, and I can memorize 50 digits backwards and forwards with without breaking a sweat. And at the upper echelon students that we have that have kind of gone on to to take this more seriously, they're memorizing thousands of digits. Or we had one guy go to a conference and memorize 150 people's names at the conference. And the conference was a two-day conference. It's like, how did you manage to have 150 conversations? That's the yeah. super skill there. Really? Where did you get to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Exactly. When did you get your snack? <laughs> right. You probably were shaking hands and kissing babies, you know, but it's insane what you can do. And I guess I should preface by saying like, we teach the exact same techniques that are being taught to win world memory championships. We scale it down a little bit because some of the things that are being done in competition are just not practical. For example, in order to win a world memory championship today, you need to kind of have all the, the memorization work and setup done. So all you have to do is rearrange things. So I'm not going to tell you, Hey, Pete, go out and memorize 999 different images for all the possible different three-letter or three-digit numbers out there in the world. But we teach the exact same techniques in terms of how you actually do it, how you create these memories, how you organize them, how you structure them, how you review them. So the world record right now for memorizing a deck of cards is under 13 seconds. The record, last I checked, this changes pretty often, last I checked, the record for the number of decks of cards was 36 decks of cards in an hour. Pi has been memorized to 30 plus thousand digits. <laughs> I mean, it's actually quite ridiculous what your mind can do if you know how to use it. And that's like the really big asterisk because most of us are never taught how to use our brain. Oh, that's intriguing. So that's the memory side of things. And how about the speed reading side of things? Yeah, so speed reading, I always like to preface, not least because people have been fined many hundreds of thousands of dollars for false advertising and speed reading, but also because, because of those individuals, people have a lot of misconceptions about what speed reading is. So it's not reading a page a second, at least not the way we teach it, which is the way that's based on science. It's not reading one page with your left eye and the other page with your right eye. It's not photo reading. It's not any of that. The research is very clear. And I encourage people to visit our website, superhumanacademy.com slash science. We actually hired a PhD in neuroscience who recently was on a Nobel Prize winning team for some of the work that they did in memory. The research is very clear that comprehension drops at 600 words a minute. Coincidentally, the speed reading that we teach, we tell people you can get up to 600 words a minute with the amount of comprehension that you're getting or higher because of the memory techniques that we implement. And you can get up to 800 words per minute with around 70 to 80% comprehension. Again, there's sometimes things that you need to read that you don't really need 100% comprehension. But with all that prefaced, I do wanna say, Memory techniques are kind of like a an operating system overhaul or to choose a different metaphor. It's like completely changing out the engine and transmission. Whereas speed reading, I found in my experience and the experience of over 200,000 students is more like a specific tool. And you're not gonna use it all the time like you use memory techniques. You're gonna use it when you need information quickly, when the joy of reading is not the most important part. 
and when you you're not going to be doing it for extended periods of time. And people always ask me, okay, you can read seven, eight hundred words a minute. That means that you can read the average book in ninety minutes. And I say, yep. And they say, do you ever do that? And I say, only once or twice, because after that, I need like a three-hour nap. It's exhausting. It's mm-hmm. absolutely exhausting. So I always like to give people those caveats because it's an incredibly powerful tool. It got me through business school. It, it is the only reason why my email inbox is not completely overflowing and why I am able to keep up on a lot of the research. I would hate to say all the research that's being done on neuroscience and learning, and but it's not what a lot of people have marketed it as. You know, it's so funny, Jonathan. I was debating with myself. It was like, all right, if this guy comes on the show and it's like, you can do 10,000 words per minute, yeah. how much am I going to rip into him? Am I going to do it gently <laughs> or, or viciously? <laughs> you know, I, that's what I was thinking. Viciously. It was like, okay, well, I just quietly cut that out because I know it's wrong. But I love, <laughs> you gave me all the right answers. Not that I know all the right answers in advance, but I kind of, I've dabbled and researched a bit in terms of like what's just in possible. And I love the integrity here in terms of, you know, hiring the doctor, getting into the mix and, uh, and sharing the, the constraints and limitations like, Hey, well, first of all, it would still be awesome to double your reading whenever you need to. I mean, that's, that's still a huge benefit, but note, if you want to really enjoy what you're reading or you do want to savor it and you want to um, be at full energy for everything else you're doing in the rest of the day, and then it, it ain't the the tool for you to pull out in that moment. So great contextualization. And I do want to say that there are gradations, right? Like I, after being trained in speed reading before, well, there there kind of isn't a before. I, I had learning disabilities growing up. So my uh, parents bought me speed reading books when I was like 12. So it's hard to determine when my before was, but I never could get it to work. And when I was tested at age 24, for my reading speed, I was reading at like 450 words per minute, whereas the average person reads 200 to 250 words per minute if they're college educated. But my comprehension was 40%. So like, what does that achieve? Today, I can read that same 450 words per minute with near perfect comprehension. So it's not an either or situation, but it is one of my mentors once told me the best speed readers are able to vary their speed, not just based on what they're reading, but in individual sections and sentences. So it's like, okay, I know what's going to happen in the section. Let me ratchet it up and I can read much faster. Whereas, okay, hang on. I'm, I'm really confused about this whole chapter on quantum mechanics. I'm going to bring it back down. And that back down may still be 300, 400, 500 words per minute, but with much higher comprehension. And when I created our original course, I came at it from this whole perspective of, first off, I was taught to speed read by two different teachers And it never worked for me because it's the classic Woody Harrelson, like I read War and Peace in an hour and it's about Russia, but also understanding that like the ultimate time waster is chewing air and reading. It's it's even worse to read fast and forget everything you're reading than it is to just read it slowly. So we focused on comprehension and, and truthfully speaking over the last six years, We've made the comprehension and memory and retention parts bigger and the speed reading parts smaller. And we've moved all the comprehension and retention pieces up earlier on in the course because it just time and time again, that's what transforms people's lives in our courses. Well, so let's dig into a bit of the how here. So how does one boost their comprehension when they're reading? Yeah, that's a great question. First thing you can do And I think your listeners will appreciate this because I haven't talked about this in 5,000 other interviews that I've done over the last six years. Many people don't realize how important 
preparation is overall. And I'm going to explain two different aspects of, of preparation. One, and both of them are going to seem like there's no way that works. This is fluff. Give me the good stuff. This is the good stuff. Don't worry. One, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And so if you just pick up a book and you don't stop to ask yourself, what am I trying to get out of this book? What level of comprehension? Am I reading it for a specific piece of information for enjoyment? That's going to change the way that you pay attention. It's going to change. It's kind of like setting goals, right? Like if you don't have goals, you kind of just coast. Like, what are you doing, right? So going in with preparation and preparation also means like having a backup plan. Like, what are you going to do if you don't understand the text? Are you going to reread it or are you going to ask someone? Or are you going to look it up somewhere else online and see if it's explained more clearly? So having this backup plan and knowing exactly what you want to get out of the text. And I go in my next book, The Only Skill That Matters, I go into much more depth about this conversation of preparation and, and give people kind of a flight checklist of you need to answer these questions before you dive into learning. Part of the reason that this works so well is we know a lot about the way that the adult brain learns and the requirements for learning. And we know that adults learn best if they know why they're learning something, how they're going to use it, and if they're going to use it immediately, which is a nice segue into the next kind of preparation piece, which is something we call pre-reading. Pre-reading comes from this reading methodology called SQ3R, survey question read, recall, review. When you do pre-reading, you survey and question. You're looking at the text very, very quickly and kind of skimming. You're doing what I like to call reinforced skimming. You are looking for things that jump out at you, titles, words that are capitalized, numbers, headings, things that are italicized, long words, things that stand out pictures, diagram, and then you're generating questions about those things. For example, why are they mentioning San Francisco? What happened in 1949? You're generating all kinds of cognitive biases as well to try and get your mind to be curious. The human brain can't resist a good question. And so if you are able to generate questions and curiosity and essentially get yourself to the point where you actually want to read this text, even if it's something you don't necessarily want to read, you're going to enhance your focus, which is going to enhance your comprehension. Studies have actually shown that people who pre-read the text not only are able to read faster when they do read it, they're also able to produce higher quality, more accurate summaries of the text, which is a proxy for how well they understood, retained, and were able to reproduce and, and recall the text. It's, it's a very good test for understanding actually how much of it sank in. And all that is from flipping through the pages, spending one or two seconds on each page before you read. Interesting. So with one or two seconds, I mean, you're not really subvocalizing anything. You're just sort of like getting a visual exposure. You're barely comprehending anything. Yeah. It's like, those are words. Yeah. You're <laughs> literally generating curiosity. And the beauty of this technique is that there's kind of no wrong way to do it. I mean, we're in the process right now of building our certified coaching program and training our certified coaches. And so I, I've just gone through this whole thought process of a lot of what we do. The trick is like, I, I don't know what's going on in the person's head. And there's a lot of like false flags that can happen and cognitive biases and stuff like that. But with this one, the test is very simple. Is the reader able to produce questions around the text? Like if I have you skim, Pete, 15 pages, looking at each page for one second, and then I take the book away and I ask you, 
what are some of the things you want to know when you read this, when I let you read this? And you go, okay, I saw this thing in there. It was like hypermyalgia, something like that. I, I, I didn't catch what that word is, but I'm dying to know what it is and what it means. And why is it in a history textbook? Like that makes no sense to me. Or you come and you say, oh man, I saw the word vegan and I have a feeling I know what this author is going to say. And I have a feeling this is going to be that kind of text that my friend Alan really loves because he's like a total vegan warrior. So you're already generating questions, curiosity, and you go back to those three requirements that I mentioned. You've already done a lot of the work to prime your brain. And, and this is comes from the theory of, of an early learning expert uh, named Malcolm Knowles. You've already told me how you're going to use the text. You've already told me why it's applicable and why you're you're looking to read it. And in some instances, you've already told me that you're going to be using it immediately to talk to your friend Alan or send it and rub the article in his face. So you've generated so much curiosity and questions. The other test is like, are you now eager and excited to read this text? Because forget the fact that it's about real estate law in the Netherlands or something super boring like that. Are you eager to read it because you have all these unanswered questions? Yeah. And then if you're not, that might be an indicator right there. It's like, well, do you have to read it? <laughs> Maybe you can right. call that done and move on to something else. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, well, well, yeah, that, that gets me going. I'm, I'm thinking now about, you know, you know, Bob Shaldini in his book, Persuasion. He sort of talks about mm -hmm. how he figured out a formula to get his class like super engaged such that they would not even leave when the bell rang. He's like, oh, it looks like we've, we've cracked the code here. And it was that very thing. It's about generating questions like, how is it that this occurred when this, 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 and this were not working in their favor? They're like, well, I don't know. How did that occur? <laughs> and so and it's just like any good story or, or movie or, or book, it's or even like a mediocre one, like Lifetime original movies. There was a period of my life, I don't know why, they, they kept sucking me in <laughs> and they weren't very good. This was before Netflix. Right, yeah, cool. So SQ3R, you brought it to life way more than I've experienced when I first encountered it. That It's all about generating that curiosity and that eagerness so that your, your brain is is amped, it's primed, it's it's good to go. So what should we do after the pre-reading? Well, then you, you've you gotten through the S and the Q, now you get to R. Uh, you do your first read-through, and ideally, you know, you speed-read, depending on your level of training, I guess I would say. You speed-read the text, and we can go into how all that works or doesn't work in the case of a lot of what you see online. And then after that, you pause, and you review. You review the text. You close your eyes or close the book or, or look up at the ceiling and you ask yourself, what did I take away from that? And, and you do this, you can do it at the end of every page. You can do it at the end of chapters, but you stop and you create visualizations, visual mnemonics. This is huge because most people read once and expect themselves to remember everything that they read in that book forever. And that's not going to happen even with the best mnemonic techniques you're only going to remember it for so long. What you need to do is spaced repetition. So you close the book, you review, and then later on, ideally, ideally, you would test yourself on this knowledge. I like to create simple tests for myself by just writing a summary for myself of the book and key takeaways and key points. And then after that, you continue to review. Periodically, you go in, look at your notes, look at your highlights, and just kind of refresh yourself. Look at your book summary because Anyone who tells you I can teach you how to memorize something once and remember it forever is a liar. <laughs> Your brain is designed to forget things. It is highly efficient 
in fact, at forgetting the things that you don't use. So if you want to remember something, you kind of need to review it and use it. Yeah, there was a brief period of time in which all of United States history made great sense right when I took mm -hmm. the AP U.S. history exam in high school. Right. And it was kind of fun. And then it all left me. Alas. Yep. <laughs> so understood. So if you don't need it, it goes away. Got to do some reinforcing of it. Uh, cool. Well, well, so that's sort of the, the speed reading side of things. Any perspective with regard to like, I stops and I saw a video with Tim Ferriss drawing some lines in on a book. Anything you want to comment on in, in that world? Yeah, absolutely. So first you have to understand that your eyes are not meant to read. Right. And reading is great. <laughs> I love reading. Me and reading are besties. But we are not really meant to process language visually. And therefore, reading does this kind of weird thing where you take visual information, which is these little squiggles on a page, which were super effective at consuming information in that way. We can assess not only assess someone's face and if we recognize them, but also the complex emotions on that person's face in 150 milliseconds. It's insane. We're really good at picking up information visually. But then what we do is we try to process language through that. That's where everything kind of falls apart because we don't process language that fast. And so we subvocalize, which is an unavoidable thing because we're meant to process language auditorily. And so you have this kind of like whole mess of what's going on. And that's why when you scan people's larynx, even speed readers, by the way, as I do. <laughs> yeah, as as one does, you just put uh, sophisticated electronic equipment up to one's larynx in your goings about. And you see that there's electrical signaling when someone is reading because we're, we're kind of processing with our larynx. I'm not a neuroscientist and don't play one on the internet, but that's kind of what we understood about reading. So there's no way to eliminate subvocalization entirely, but you can reduce it in the same way that we've all seen those, those stupid things posted where it's like every word is misspelled, but the first and last character is right. So you don't even notice, or you can still read it or situations where they, you see a paragraph of text and the word the is repeated every single time twice, but you don't even notice because you're kind of on an autopilot. So we can reduce subvocalization. And one of the ways that we do that is by optimizing the movement of the eyes. When your eyes are in motion, when they're making what's called saccades, you're actually subject to a phenomenon called saccadic blindness or saccadic masking. In other words, your optic nerve kind of shuts off while your eyes are in motion. If you don't believe me, you can put two fingers out in front of you, one on your right hand, one on your left, and then look at your left finger and then look at your right finger and notice that you kind of don't pick up any information in between. Your brain stitches the pictures together. Huh. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we have a recording timer going. It's actually moving, right? It's, you see those red numbers moving. They totally mm -hmm. disappeared. Yeah, okay. I'm yep. with you. So, and that's fine. That's that's like really useful if if you don't want to fall over every time you like move your eyes. But what that means is while your eyes are in motion, you're not taking in additional information. Most people, when they read, they make one saccade and one fixation, which is kind of, think of a fixation as like an eyeful or a resting of the eye. It's when you're fixated on something per word. And therefore, there's a lot of motion going on and a lot of time spent in saccadic blindness. You can never train your eyes to have a wider fovea, which is the focal area of the eye, but you can train your brain 
to pay attention to the fuzzy stuff the same way that someone who needs glasses can still kind of pay attention to what's happening even though it's a little fuzzy. You can do this with various different tools and once you train your brain to pay attention to the fuzzy stuff in the paraphobia, the stuff outside the focal optimal area, then you can start making larger saccades, moving your eyes only once or twice per line of text. And that's what then we can optimize those even further. So you waste less time and less of the fovea and paraphobia looking at white stuff in the margins and more time looking at the good stuff, the text. And so when you say tools, uh, is this like the writing of lines inside a couple words of the margins of a book? Or, or what do you mean by tools? Tools to expand your ability to take in information from the paraphobia are called Schultz tables. And uh, you can actually check them out at games.becomeasuperlearner.com. We have some free Schultz table exercises that people can do. Uh, it's quite fun. It's like a Sudoku, but you stare at the middle square and then you try without moving your eyes to pick up all the stuff in the in the periphery. And then you expand it, get bigger, make the number smaller. And you can actually train yourself to pick up stuff in the margins, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is fun. And we're both genuinely enthusiastic about this. This is what makes a podcast great. <laughs> it does sound like fun for me to do. And I definitely plan on doing so. So now then, you mentioned subvocalization, which is like the inner voice, right. kind of saying the words. You're saying, so that still happens, even though our eyeballs are are taking in more words, we've got that, that tiny voice is actually reading silently all the words that we're picking up. Yeah. Well, and not all, even people who aren't trained in speed reading rarely subvocalize every word like and, etc. But for a long time, I thought I just need to get better and reduce it to the point where it doesn't happen. And then I dug deeper into the research and realized a few different things. One, there's no way to eliminate subvocalization. It's just part of how we process the text, but you can minimize it. And also every once in a while, and by that, I mean like at least once a month, <laughs> people like to send me a different research paper or article or study, quote unquote, disproving speed reading. And I love these because almost invariably they prove the kind of speed reading that we're teaching. They're disproving the speed reading of 5,000 words per minute by saying reading is limited in the most skilled and trained readers to 600 words per minute with perfect comprehension or 800. And one of the things that they talk about is you cannot train your brain to read an entire page or even an entire line without, it just can't be done. You can't read an entire line without moving your eyes. But they've shown in studies that when you block the stuff in the periphery, in the paraphobia, so for example, if you track someone's eye on the line and you essentially only let them read the word that they're reading and you don't let them have what they call the preview effect, their comprehension and reading speed dramatically suffers even when the blocker is moving pretty much as fast as their eye. So it's super interesting. It's like this research that disproves speed reading is actually proving exactly this, that like the paraphobia is a critical part of reading and you need to be able to see what's happening. So therefore, we should be able to optimize and train that piece. That's cool. Well, let's maybe shift gears for a I don't know if that answered your question, though. <laughs> oh, no, I dig it in, in terms of, yep, that, that voice is going to be going and there's no way around it. But, you know, you may not have to articulate every connector word in the inner voice. So so that's handy. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why that's so important is, first off, our comprehension is just better visually. We, we have better visual memory and, and better, as I said, we're faster at comprehending things visually. But also, I mean, I encourage everyone listening to this podcast, go back a couple of minutes and if, if your app allows it, it probably doesn't allow you to go beyond 3x speed 
And the reason for that is we can really only comprehend the spoken word at around 400, 400 words per minute. And the reason most of these apps are limited to 2x speed is because you can't really get every single word at more than 300 to 400 words per minute. Now, I'm speaking about 150 to 160 words per minute. So, you know, you do the math, 2x speed is 300 and see how comfortable that is. And then imagine another 50% on top of that. So this sub-vocalizing every word really just slows you down. Okay, cool. So let's shift to the memory side of things. I mean, I've, I've read some of the tricks associated with, if you try to memorize a list of things, create a ridiculous picture in your brain uh, mm-hmm. to, to connect them. So if I'm remembering iPhone and screwdriver, I, I might imagine like a, a hundred screwdrivers dancing on my iPhone. And then I, I've connected those lists and then numerically turn each uh, number into like a, a sound, like, uh, <laughs> uh, like nine becomes a uh, a P or B sound, and mm-hmm. uh, that you can create words out of numbers and then visualize them and link them together. So, so those are some tactics that I found kind of handy when I really hunker down and uh, say, mm-hmm. "Okay, I, I have to remember this list. There's no means of writing this down. We're going to go use these uh, approaches." But what I find tricky is faces, and I think all professionals could be enriched by this. Is if we can put totally faces to names. So, Jonathan, I'd love to put you on the spot. How can we boost our memory for names and faces? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually, people often ask me, like, what do I use this stuff for? And, and where has it made the most impact in my life? And I think they expect me to be like, well, I speak four languages and I, you know, learned two musical instruments in the last few years and blah, 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 blah. But that hasn't impacted my life nearly as much as just always being able to remember names. And like one corollary of that is I can tell you all the waiters that have served me in the last like two weeks. Today, my waitress at the restaurant was Maya. And whenever I need Maya, like everyone else is shouting, excuse me, or check please. And I just say Maya at normal speaking volume and she whips around and I have my check and it's amazing. How do you do (laughs) names and faces? Very simple. Same association and visualization techniques. In order to memorize something, first you need to visualize it. It's going to be the vast majority of the benefit is going to come from visualizing everything that you want to remember, creating these novel, bizarre pictures that that you mentioned, but then also connecting it. Our brains function a lot like Google's PageRank algorithm. They ask, what is this connected to? How many other things is is it connected to? And how important are those things? Because there's a lot of information hitting us every day and, and we need some way to figure out what is and is not important. So what I might do is first connect that person to someone else that I know that has that name and figure out their commonalities, picture the two of them together, picture the two of them fighting, something absurd, outrageous, that might be easy. If their name has another possible visualization opportunity, for example, Mike, I might picture them doing karaoke and embarrassing themselves with a microphone. With a microphone. Right. If their name is Ross, I might picture them bargain shopping at the store, Ross, (laughs) and on and on and on. If they have a name that you maybe don't know, like Sanjana or uh, Krishant, I would break it down and figure out a way to make it into some kind of visualization that I am familiar with. So croissant might become croissant and I might visualize him wearing a hat made of a croissant. And I'm probably, hopefully not going to call him croissant, 
But uh, if I do, I can say that I misspoke. <laughs> and that's how you do it. It's, it's visualizations and connections to pre-existing knowledge. Now, I, I, I'm probably never going to forget what a croissant looks like or what a croissant is. That's a memory that's like pretty deeply ingrained for me, especially because I have many memories when I was living in France of walking down the street and picking up fresh croissants and maybe I could throw croissant in with that memory. So you pick things that are familiar to you, that are important to you, and then you incorporate those into, again, tip number one, your visualizations. And so just how long does that mental process take? Fractions of a second, if you're trained. Well, so Harry Lorraine once told me, this is going to seem like a tangent. He once told me the first thing to remembering names and faces is actually paying attention to them. So I do have to mention that because Harry Lorraine is kind of the godfather of, of modern memory improvement. And he's right. About this, we agree. Most people don't pay attention. So first step is, is pay attention. And second step is repeat the name back. Because I cannot tell you, these techniques are so incredibly powerful. You really don't want to misremember someone's name. I had someone who I thought I, I could have sworn she said Sharon. It was Shannon. I, gotcha. for many weeks after that, called her Sharon. <laughs> because, <laughs> and I never once forgot, by the way, to call her Sharon. They're very powerful techniques. Make sure you get the name right. In that time where you go, is that croissant? Am I saying that right? You now have given yourself one to two seconds, which is more than enough time Recently, I, at the same lecture for Shell, someone came up to me after I got off stage and he said, okay, memory man, look at this. And he, his last name was C, his, his nickname was C plus 13 because his last name had 14 letters, C plus da da da. And it, it was pronounced Horachevsky, mm -hmm. this like long Polish name. Horachevsky. And he's like, how do you remember that? And I was like, in the time it took me to describe it, I already had it, right? So I imagine people dancing the hora, like Orthodox Jews with the black and white outfit. They're dancing the hora in a Chevy and they're they're like shaking skis above their head. Horashevsky. Like how quick is that, right? All I did was just what do those three things sound like? Horashevsky. Visualize that. Yeah, that's cool. Now, I, I always talk about Horachevsky. I don't remember his first name. He didn't ask me to memorize his first name. I believe it was Jeff. Well, it, it, what's, what's funny is that I can imagine that maybe the first hundred times you do this, you got to mm -hmm. hunker down and think for a good, I don't know, 20 seconds. Horachevsky. Okay, boy, let me go. I'm going to go with prostitute. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know. And, um, that works. And, that, yeah. That's even better than mine because it's more outrageous. Violent, sexual, and kind of like disturbed imagery works even better. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, well, so you've got a, a turn of a phrase that I can't resist. Got to touch on this. What's the mnemonic nuclear option and how do we use it? Oh yeah, this is a good one. So the mnemonic nuclear option is my kind of fun nickname for the memory palace. Oh, okay. How was that? It just worked out perfectly. Yeah, I call it the the nuclear option because it's kind of like for most things, bringing going to a water balloon fight and bringing an ICBM with a nuclear warhead. It's like it'll do the job. It's probably overkill, but it'll do the job. You know, if you're learning three people's names at a cocktail party, you probably don't need a memory palace. It'll work. And what you do in the memory palace technique or method of LOCI people may have heard is you take a location such as your house, your office, whatever. You take these visualizations that you've created of Mike on the mic or Horachevsky and you put them in places. That's it. 
you put them on furniture, you put them in window sills, corners. I like to put them in logical places based on what they are. So for example, the word for burn in Russian is stored on the stove. Makes a lot of sense. And just by doing that, because our, our brains are wired to remember location, it's, it's kind of part of your survival toolkit. If you don't know where the, the winter food supply is or, or where you buried something or how to get to the watering hole, you're kind of done from an evolutionary perspective. So uh, our brains remember locations really crazy well automatically. So this is just kind of hijacking that. And it's an incredibly powerful technique. This is how people reach those achievements of pi to 30,000 digits or a deck of cards in under 13 seconds. It's insanely powerful. I think it's out of all the hacks that I've ever learned and, and I've, I've done 240 something, 50 something episodes with some of the world's top superhumans. This one is the craziest one where it's like, I can teach you this and in an hour of practice, I can 10 to 20 X your memory massive ROI. <laughs> well, I guess we won't spend a whole hour on it, but I've heard of this, but so like, if I just like stick uh, a person on the couch in my head, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem kind of very noteworthy to me. Like, do I need to make it ridiculous with regard to how they're being placed on the couch or, or what's the, how do I make it? Let me show you how powerful click. this is. We'll play a fun game. When did you move around a lot when you were a kid? No. And everyone in the audience can do this even if they did. You remember your childhood home? Yes. You remember your parents' bedroom? Yes. That was probably the room that you spent the least time in in the house, right? That's true. Okay. What side did mom sleep on, left or right? You know, I don't know if I know. I know where the little wolf puppet was that belonged to my dad. <laughs> okay, where was that? On the bedpost. That was on uh, the left side as I'm facing it the left foot side. Okay. Do you remember, was there a table by the side of the bed? Yes. What was on that table? There was an old school alarm clock with a red digital numbers and usually a book. So two things. Was it a GE alarm clock, the red digital numbers? I'm not sure. So funny story. I, I've, I do this a lot to demonstrate. By the way, when was the last time you were in that house? It was rough more than 13 years ago. More than 13. Did you ever sit down and go, I better remember this red alarm clock? No. <laughs> Right. So your brain does this automatically, ranging from, you could tell me what corner of your shower the soap bottles are in, like the most mundane, stupid things, all the way up to 13 years ago, what was on the, the bedside table in the room that you spent the least time in. The other funny thing is I, I do this a lot as a demonstration, and it seems like everyone's parents had that same freaking alarm clock. <laughs> My parents had the exact same one. It was like wood grain, red letters, GE. They must have made millions on those alarm clocks. That's good. That's good. A product winner. So, so I, I'm with you. Fair enough. I'm remembering these locations real well, and so then I can just stick new things there, and they'll they'll be there when I revisit the location. Yeah, and you do need to review. You can't do it once, and it'll be there forever. Though some stuff that I've put in there once randomly, I can't get rid of. <laughs> uh, that's a whole different skill. But with very minimal review, it will stay in there. Okay. Well, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about a couple of your favorite things. Jonathan, can you give us a favorite quote? Ooh, I've got a few, but I'll go back to a, an old, old school one that I used to love, which is uh, the greatest happiness in life is the conviction that we're loved, loved for ourselves or rather loved in spite of ourselves. Powerful. And how about a favorite book? I'd have to probably say Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, so uh, people can check out superhumanacademy.com where we have 
hundreds and hundreds of hours of podcast episodes with the world's top performers, online courses, free trials of online courses. We got a ton of stuff up there. And I would encourage people to check out my latest book coming out September 3rd. It's on Amazon and we can send a link uh, to put in the show notes for you guys. And that is called The Only Skill That Matters. And it talks about all this stuff in a fun and engaging way with stories and examples. My mom says it's a really good read. So <laughs> what more testimonial do you need? That's good. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs. Yeah, I want people to go out today and I want them in their job or in their day-to-day -day interactions to learn the names, that, as we've discussed today, I want them to learn the names of 10 new people. And then I want them to remember those names, first off. And I want them to see what the impact in their life is of just getting to know 10 new people and learning their names, professionally, personally, or otherwise. Thank you. Jonathan, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you all the best in your learning adventures. Back at you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciated Jonathan's insights, and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. You know, I'll tell you, it has been so helpful to apply Jonathan's memory approach for names. And I've also learned how it can just really be personal for you in terms of what your associations are. So there was this woman at church, and I know I've heard her name numerous times, but this time I've decided I was going to lock it in. So I applied the techniques and I tried to get violent with it, actually. She said her name was Nancy, and that reminded me of an episode of the cartoon Archer in which our hero Archer is trying to defuse a bomb. And there was a funny misunderstanding because he was entering this code and the person on the other end of the phone was spelling out the letters of the code. And so he says, Emma's and Mancy, and then it explodes. And he goes, what's going on? You know, this, this bomb exploded on me. It's a cartoon, so he's not dead. This bomb exploded. You said N as in Nancy. He's like, no, no, I said M as in Mancy. Ha, 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 ha. Why would you use the word Mancy to illustrate the letter M when Nancy is much more common? I understand there's a Mancy's in Ohio somewhere, which is a tasty restaurant. I look forward to checking it out. But anyway, so there's an explosion. And so I imagine Nancy exploding into pieces with her body parts and blood all over the place. Well, that's very dramatic and gruesome and disturbing. But as Jonathan said, it sure was effective. I have never forgotten her name. I know that's Nancy and that is locked in forever. So if you're okay letting your brain go to these dark places for moments, you can reap the benefits for a long, long time. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F485. And if you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe. If you do so, you will catch our next guest, who is Dave Stahoviak. He is back for a second time. I know we got many Coaching for Leaders listeners amongst us, and we are going to hear Dave's masterful perspectives on investing in people. He is so good at it. So it's great to get his take. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.